0: Hello and welcome to Talking Finance, I'm Alan Kohler. And this week, the yes vote had an overall win in the same-sex marriage survey, of course, but in some electorates, especially those in Western Sydney, the no vote came out on top. So I gave Mark Kenny a call, who's the National Affairs Editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, to find out, firstly, if there's an impact for Labor MPs in those electorates. Also, market strategist Evan Lucas has a look at what's been going on in the markets this week, and Annette Beecher of TD Securities Goes through this week's employment and wages data, and also Justin Steele, director of China Ready Now, which is a consultant for those companies looking to take advantage of Chinese tourism, has a look at the demands of Chinese tourists and what's going on there. But first, here's Mark Kenny, national affairs editor of the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age. Joining me now is Mark Kenny, national affairs editor for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age. Well, Mark, um, obviously the the yes vote was kind of expected, what interests me about it is that the uh, Labor electorates of Western Sydney voted overwhelmingly no. Do you think that's going to be a problem for the Labor MPs? Look,
1: I don't think it is. I think Tony Burke, for example, uh, has one of those uh, Western Sydney seats called Watson. He made the point that he expected his electorate to vote in the majority no position, but that he had campaigned uh, the last election, made it clear that he was a supporter of same-sex marriage. Uh, and uh, he said some people will be disappointed in uh, in his election. Some people will be disappointed with him not reflecting uh, that majority position, but no one will be surprised. And I think, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's going to be the case for most of them. They've made it pretty clear where they stand. And uh, I think... Once this issue is is legislated, uh, you know, a lot of the fuss will die down. And by next election, I I can't imagine that it will be um, a huge problem. I mean, after all, it would be difficult for anyone to be campaigning against uh, same-sex marriage after the, you know, the legitimising process of this national vote. Criticised though it was, it has given great authority to this change. And uh, it's not like the Liberal Party is going to be campaigning uh, against him, for example, uh, saying
0: they're going to roll it back. I suppose the only other question about it is whether it worsens the split in the Liberal Party.
1: Whether it uh, deepens the, the divisions in the Liberal Party. Uh, yes. Look, I think it probably does in some ways. But again, I think it'll probably be quite healing. I was a strong critic of the plebiscite, the original version of this, and uh, and, and somewhat uh, contemptuous of the postal survey because it was you know unbolted at both ends, it was not binding to par- not compulsory to participate in, and not binding on parliamentarians at the end of it. But I think uh, you know I've, I've, what I've witnessed, I think what we've all witnessed is a protest where Australians engaged in it in in a very enthusiastic way, in, in large numbers, and gave a very decisive result in every jurisdiction. And I think that has taken an enormous amount of heat out of this. I think it's really cut the ground out from from the right. We'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks in terms of the, uh, the negotiations over this private members' bill. But I think the, the right's been de on this issue quite considerably. And I don't think Turnbull could have done that any other way than by essentially using the, the enormous leverage that the Australian people have given him. Uh, so there'll be some divisions over this, but I think... Uh, you know, I think people on the on the extreme right, the sort of ideologues have been marginalised quite considerably by this process.
0: Do you think that Christina Keneally is a chance to win Benelot?
1: Well, she's definitely a chance. I mean, she comes in with a very high profile. She's a great political communicator. And one of the things I noticed about uh, her opening Salvo when she was being announced by Bill Shorten was that she's just a really terrific uh, communicator. Now, she carries some baggage, uh, that being her uh, past associations with names like uh, Eddie Obeid and Ian MacDonald and the you know, the fag end of what was a uh, a pretty terrible period of, of New South Wales government. Um, but nonetheless, she's extremely articulate, extremely presentable, uh, very intelligent, uh, I think underestimated on that score. And I think she'll be very formidable. That said, she's got to overcome a 10% uh, buffer that um, uh, the the incumbent has, uh, John Alexander. So uh, it's a tough one. But Labor's certainly given themselves the best possible chance of an upset win.
0: If she does win, does that inevitably mean an early election?
1: Not about inevitably, but of course we've got to see this in the context of uh, this ongoing citizenship problem. That's why we're having a by-election. I mean, John Alexander's been the member elected in 2016, and uh, he's now the Liberal candidate, presumably. I mean, that's yet to be absolutely finalised, but um, uh, he's um, he's he's running again in the seat that uh, he already won because of this citizenship thing. Now that's going that same uh, citizenship crisis that's been sweeping through the Parliament. He's going to create a number of by-elections, we're told. This is only one of them. That is a very important one because it is notionally a pretty safe liberal seat at the moment, uh, and it does determine the balance of power if the parliament is configured the way it is. in the sense that, you know, where it's the 76th seat, really, uh, or the 75th seat when you take out the Speaker. If the Liberals lose it, then they go into minority government. Uh, so there'll be a lot of interest in that, and I think it'll be devastating, really, in and of itself for uh, Malcolm Turnbull's authority. Uh, but we can't extract this or abstract this from uh, from all those other possibilities. We may see a whole swag of by-elections, and, and the, the weight of all of that may force a general election.
0: We just don't know. Um, yeah, I was thinking of Kathy McGowan, who uh, she's she's promised to support the government on supply and confidence, but not necessarily everything.
1: Mm. Well, it, it is true that uh, the the um, cross benches uh, have made it pretty clear that they will support, for the most part, the government, and even if. Uh, even if the government were to lose both by-elections that it currently has in play, um, that being New England, where where Barnaby Joyce is contesting, they won't lose it. But even if they were to lose Joyce's seat and they were to lose Bennelong, they'd still have more seats in their pocket at the moment than Julia Gillard had throughout her, uh, her period of minority government, when she pretty much ran a full term and passed a lot of legislation. So it's quite possible for the government to exist on that basis, but... Um, uh, you know, there are so many uh, uh, unknowns at the moment because of this uh, citizenship crisis uh, cutting a sway through Parliament. One of the people caught up in that is uh, potentially is Rebecca Sharkey, the member for Mayo, um, the uh, Adelaide uh, seat, and um, she's an Xenophon team uh, lower house member. Uh, she could have citizenship problems, and she's one of the crossbench numbers that is, uh, you know, guaranteeing supply for the, uh, uh, confidence and supply for the government at the moment. So there are just so many variables in this. We do, one thing we do know is that, uh, this pol- political crisis will still be going on after Christmas, even if they sort out the same-sex marriage uh, issue.
0: Just finally, it's a great time to be a political reporter.
1: Oh, it, it absolutely is. Um, uh, you know, the, the scale and pace of events at the moment is really quite staggering. Every single day, uh, uh, it seems there's uh, you know there's a new big story and some of these stories are, are happening with with such rapidity that they're 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 knocking each other off the front page. So things that we might imagine would be big stories in their own right are are sort of getting lost in um, uh you know in the next big crisis that befalls the government. So as a political reporter, uh, there's plenty to uh, plenty to cover, no doubt about that. I mean, I went out of the office yesterday for like literally 15 minutes to get a cup of coffee and and came back in and uh, you know someone else had fallen. So um yes, very exciting.
0: Joining me now is Evan Lucas, the market strategist. Evan, the ASX 200 is back below 6,000. Do you think it's going to stay there? Uh, probably for most of November. I've always expected
2: November to be a fairly soggy month. I mean, if you look historically over the last 10 years, ASX averages about a 2.1% decline in November. Part of that is the fact that the banks, the three that do report out um, of cycle, always go ex-dividend. It's also sort of a a month where you, you do get the back tailwind of what is normally one of the best months of the year, which is October. And if you look at the ASX, from pretty much the end of September, start of October to where it peaked out, it added 370-odd points. So a bit of a pullback in November is, is probably not a bad thing. It's probably actually, from a, from a market perspective, actually slightly healthy just to have a little bit of a breather, reassess on valuations, also reassess on, on momentum to see if we can go through. So
0: not too concerned that we're having a bit of a soggy in November. Is there a sense um, that uh, the US market is, is done and dusted now, or is it uh, just having a little rest? That's an interesting question. I mean, the way, and
2: we discussed this a couple of weeks back too, if you look at things like volatility, if you look at things like their bond market, not yet. Their bond market is certainly showing signs of slight stress, um, but that certainly would probably be more down to the idea that the possibility of rate rises uh, are coming in the U.S., um, and maybe the bond traders are starting to put a bit of pressure. But if you look at their current earnings season, it's just been still very strong and still very positive. If you look at their economic expectations next year, they are positive. And we've actually started to see inflation in the US start to get towards where they want to. So the inflation numbers we saw last night were reasonable. Um, and again, all of the momentum in the US markets and economics is actually translating into their, their actuals, which is, again, all that's positive. So yes, I would agree. It's probably more of a breather. Um, There is still, you know, reasonable expectation that the US markets next year will be positive. And again, it's just the question now of whether or not Washington can deliver on its tax plan. If it can, um, that's probably also just a, another sort of reason to finally get a tick of approval for the leg we've had and,
0: and giving it a possibly another leg higher still. Well, Evan, what do you think the main thing in the markets is at the moment? Is it the Australian dollar, which has come down now from eighty cents to? mid 75s uh mm-hmm. since september do you do you think that that is sort of the, the biggest thing going on at the moment i think so i think you've got to look at it normally
2: when you talk about the aussie dollar we forget that when you talk about a currency pair it's a pair so the other side of it is the u.s dollar and most of the reason this year particularly that the aussie probably popped up to even as high as 81 cents is the u.s dollar this year has been really weak now there is the other side of the equation. The Aussie dollar is actually slightly dictating more so than usual around that currency pair, and it is actually structural. It's around what I see with the economic data that's been released over particularly the last week and a bit. The wage numbers yesterday clearly feed into the idea that the RBA's forecast of inflation is going to be tough to reach considering how much you know wages are part of inflation. It also goes to the other side of the equation for the RBA, which is their GDP expectation considering consumption makes up around about 40 to 42%. So all of that gets into the idea: is the current environment conducive for rate rises? The argument clearly is no. And Guido Bell pretty much said that on Monday. It also therefore sort of changes the, the sort of the dynamics in the Aussie around, you know, whether or not there's carry trade opportunities, whether or not you want to be invested in Australia over the US with the current economic environment. And that would suggest also know, which is why there's a structural downside in the Aussie. It's, it's a positive thing going forward. I mean, the RBA has been trying to jawbone the dollar lower for, for years. Now, the market's actually waking up that there's a structural reason for it to be lower. And that, therefore, will help our terms of trade. It will help us as an export nation to to sort of see a, probably a benefit in 2018. So it's a real interesting thing, the Aussie, at the moment. I actually see the decline as an equity positive,
0: And I think that needs to be your start point. Perhaps the only other thing to mention is that the um, the small caps are having another big run at the moment, uh, Mm. ever since kind of uh, the start of October, I guess, where the small ordinaries index has substantially outperformed the ASX 200 and especially the leaders. Um, What's going on there?
2: Yeah, and that's been a good thing. A lot of people were actually pointing that out. A lot of fund managers were really, really interested in the fact that pretty much at the start of the year was the first time in a long time that the small caps have actually underperformed. And the gap between large cap and small caps was at one of the largest sort of gaps, differentials it had been in probably about the last seven to eight years. So probably a close up on that. But again, the risk appetite in the market from an equity perspective has been picking up. People have been actually more genuinely positive about their outlook, despite you know some of the consumer confidence numbers that we've seen. Investment sort of optimism has been growing. And that, therefore, always filters through to firms that will always give you probably more upside in, in, a, in a risk market, and that is small caps. So those two factors is why I've seen it closing up. Um, but again, growth next year is, is where the growth in the market will come. And therefore, small caps are more likely than probably most of the, the, the top 50, even Australian stocks, which are more defensive to, to outperform. So all of that sort of culminates into why I see the market moving
0: that way. Joining me now is Annette Beecher, who is the senior economist for TD Securities in Singapore. Annette, well, uh, the last couple of days from the ABS, we've had um, uh, sort of business as usual in a way: uh, weak wages growth, strong employment growth. Um, tell us, tell us about how you put them two to things together.
3: Uh, We might as well start with wages growth since that was yesterday and I think uh, the markets TD and and almost everybody was looking for a a much better number than than what we got. Uh, The reason for that is we do get the annual jump in minimum wages which for this year was a pretty impressive 3.3% so most of us were gearing up for a decent number. But unfortunately, uh, all we got in the quarter was 0.5 and all we got in the year was 2%. So outside of that minimum wage increase, we we just didn't get uh, a better than expected number. Aussie lost quite a bit of ground and, and never really recovered. And so heading into today's employment report, I guess we were already of the view that even if we got a strong report, we've already been told that um, this year's rather robust labour market really hasn't translated. Uh, into wages growth. And so breaking down what we got today, initially a disappointing number. Uh, employment rose by just under 4,000 in the month. That was a fraction of what was expected uh, at plus 20,000. But uh, the good news did trickle out from there with a of another fall in the unemployment rate to 5.4. We haven't seen that uh, for several years. I think 2013, last time we saw that. And we did see a jump in full-time employment, which uh, usually gets interpreted as a sign of a of a stronger economy. So the report wasn't wasn't too bad, but as I say given that it doesn't appear to be sparking wages growth and in turn doesn't appear to be inflationary, we're we're still expecting the RBA to sit tight for quite some time.
0: In fact it's the longest run of positive employment growth for a long time, isn't it? I mean thir- uh, it's 13 months in a row or something.
3: Oh, we've we've uh, and in fact it's only the second time In about 12 months, that employment is less than than what the markets were looking for. Up until now, we've seen uh, some quite decent upside surprises. So the fact that we had a bit of a pause, uh, I guess, was, was also sort of thrown into the mix. But uh, it, it sort of it boils down to to a lot of things. But really, the RBA is is targeting uh, inflation, and a major feeder into inflation is wages. So we're we're just not seeing anything particularly interesting to get the uh, the RBA's attention. So. Uh, Employment this year has been 80% full-time. Hours worked, particularly male, uh, full-time hours worked have all accelerated this year, which is certainly welcome compared with the the dismal mix we had last year. So it's all pointing in the right direction. We're just not getting that uh, that usual response in terms of uh, wages and inflation.
0: Do you have a view as to why that's happening?
3: Well, I guess we can't really blame businesses, well, not yet, because uh, we certainly heard this week from the the NAB business survey that business conditions are the highest uh, since the survey was put together in uh, in 1997, so businesses are, are in pretty good shape. If anything, I think they might be in a better position to start paying out uh, some higher wages. But the problem is, the, the anecdotes on the ground seem to be telling us otherwise. Uh, in in all industries, where you know the old days of job hopping for for higher wages seem to be over, those at the um, at the early early entrance on on minimum wage. Uh, as you know, we just had that minimum wage increase, but that seems to be met with uh, with less actual hours worked. So it's just not working yet in terms of the transmission mechanism. I'm an internal optimist. I, I really hope that next year sees businesses in good shape, uh, the, the expectation that investment picks up, infrastructure picks up. Let's all hope that translates into better paid jobs. But uh, again, if it boils down to the RBA, I think they want to see some some real hard evidence that we have a positive spiral in wages and inflation before they do anything.
0: So where, where does this leave this week leave you in terms of your view about interest rates next year?
3: Well, I guess, like anything, we're, we're as data dependent as the RBA. And for a little while there, it was looking like our expectation of a May hike was, was looking too late. And now at this point in time, we've seen some disappointment on retail sales. Uh, we've seen only very, very modest increases in wages and inflation. So now that sort of leaves a May hike looking premature and I think we might keep flip-flopping like that over the next couple of months but uh, again the key key numbers for us are wages and inflation, they're quarterly so we have to wait for January for the next inflation report and we have to wait till February for the next wages report so all of that keeps the, the RBA on the sidelines at least through to March next year.
0: Joining me now is Justin Steele, who has a consulting business in Sydney called China Ready Now, and he helps local businesses uh, prepare for and deal with the boom in Chinese tourists. Well, Justin, I got a bit excited last week when um, uh, HSBC's economist in Australia, Paul Bloxham, told me that uh, 5% of uh, Chinese people have a passport and our our market share of the Chinese people who travel, that is to say Australia's share, is 1%. So that was what he said. and and at the same time, China um Chinese tourists have just become the largest number overtaking New Zealand. So it seems to me there may be a long way to go. Is that your perspective as well? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we're we're on the up in terms of
4: being a destination for Chinese visitors. Um, as is the case all around the world, uh, more and more Chinese people. Uh, getting to that point of middle-class income where they can afford to travel internationally. Uh, and Australia is a really popular and attractive destination for them. Uh, as he said, it is it's it is only something like 1% at this point of, of Chinese outbound travellers that come to Australia. Um, but even based on just forecast trends and increased numbers of middle-class Chinese, that could result in uh, up to 3 million by 2026 is the... Uh, is the estimate out of a recent report
0: from uh, the Australian Fund and Business Council? Um, one statistic I noted that is that they tend to spend more than other tourists when they come to uh, Australia. Um, is there anything anything else that's um, distinctive about them and the way they and their preferences and the way they, be, they behave?
4: Yeah, that that is um, generally the case that they they spend more. Um, although, needs to just uh, you need to make a distinction there. Um, in terms of what type of visitor you're talking about. Um, so often I see people talk about Chinese uh, tourists as being uh, spending way more than, than any other tourist market. Um, and uh, w- there is some truth to that, but if you break it down a- across the main purpose of, of visiting Australia, uh, they the, the ones who are visiting here uh, for holidays um, or visiting friends and relatives, they spend about uh, $4,000 Two hundred, four thousand, three hundred dollars per person on a trip here. Uh, but what really skews the number up, and and I see numbers of up to eight thousand dollars per Chinese visitor. Uh, what really skews that up is the number of uh, people who are here for education, uh, Chinese students at at universities and language colleges who are generally here for a lot longer and uh, and they spend more as a result of that.
0: Oh, so those numbers include the um, the students. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so they spend um, about 24000 per Chinese student when they're in Australia um, for, for the time they're here. I suppose the big difference uh, between tourism as an export and raw materials like iron ore and coal, which has been uh, the, the sort of mainstay of our relationship with China over the past 20 years, is that tourism tends to operate you know at a smaller level. There's lots more smaller businesses uh, that benefit from it, as opposed to the big mining companies. Um, so the question, I guess, is: Do do you think that Australian tourist businesses, the people you uh, sort of consult to, are ready for an increase? I mean, uh, would, are they? Are we going to be a, a welcoming, a good place for Chinese people to go to?
4: Yeah, there, uh, there are a lot of tourism businesses out there, not just the, the larger ones, um, but the, the smaller and medium-sized tourism businesses who do make up the vast majority of the, the tourism industry that are starting to, to work on their ability to to attract and to give these these Chinese visitors really high-quality experiences and um, fulfill what they are looking for in, in a holiday destination. Uh, I think there is still a lot of work to be done there, though, Um, and that's partly what I'm doing. Um, But there is definitely a lot to do in terms of uh, being accessible on the technologies and um, mobile platforms that Chinese tourists use, uh, accepting the the forms of payment uh, that Chinese tourists prefer to pay with, Uh, and and then at the most basic level, I guess, uh, just really having information out there uh, in Chinese. Um, So that is something that is... Kind of different to other um, international visitor markets, that the level of English spoken uh, by Chinese visitors tends to be lower. Uh, than what you would expect from uh, people from Europe or, or America or elsewhere for that matter. Uh, and so I think that's actually one of our biggest uh, roadblocks to to really tapping into this market is, is to have information out there that is even Chinese or um, or uh, addresses their kind
0: of needs and, and concerns. In fact, I heard that you mentioned payments. I heard that, that this was one of the big blockers. Uh, the big problems for Chinese tourists was because they don't carry the same cards, and so there needs there needs to be a lot of work done by Australian businesses to accept their payments. Are you doing a lot of work in that area, and and how how much work needs to be done?
4: Yeah, I I am working in in that area and um, trying to educate people about how they can use uh, WeChat Pay, how they can use Alipay, which are the main two forms of mobile payment, um, but Even before that, uh, I guess a lot of operators still don't accept union pay, um, which is the most popular form of payment for Chinese customers. Uh, So union pay is is basically a debit card, um, which is linked up to just about every Chinese bank. Uh, And the thing is that credit cards never were really as popular in China as they have been in Australia and and elsewhere. Uh, So China went from being very dependent on cash and union pay, uh, which was only five to 10 years ago, to skipping that whole credit card stage and now uh, mobile payments through WeChat Pay and Alipay are really taking off in China. Um, So up to 50% of of businesses in China, even small businesses like noodle shops and uh, hole-in-the-wall restaurants accept WeChat Pay and Alipay, and yet in Australia, you see that uh, a lot of businesses still aren't even accepting union pay.
0: Is it easier for them to accept WeChat Pay and Alipay than union pay? It's it's not impossible.
4: Um, There is a little bit of work involved, um, but there are a lot of uh, third-party companies now coming out and making technology, making it accessible for Australian businesses to receive payment through WeChat Pay and Alipay. Uh, for it to be converted into Australian dollars and to arrive in their their bank accounts uh, within, you know, two business days. So there are a number of companies that that are working in that space to make it easier. Um, But um, most of those companies, I think, um, are not that well-known, especially amongst uh, Australian
0: business owners. Um, uh, Now, obviously, our product is aimed at uh, investors and, uh, in particular, investors in in ASX-listed companies. Now, obviously... Ah, uh, two of the beneficiaries of the Chinese tourist boom are Qantas and Virgin because they tend to fly around Australia after they get here.. Yep. Um, mm. Can you think of any other businesses that that will benefit uh, directly from this boom that um that might be large enough to be listed?
4: Yeah, well, there is um I guess in in consumer goods, there's there's a number of uh, industries or businesses that have done well out of the increase uh, in Chinese visitors. Um, so, one that I think is, is a really good example is wine, uh, for instance. So, um, under the free trade agreement, a lot of the tariffs around wine were reduced, um, the free trade agreement with, with China. Uh, and in, in 2016, for instance, we saw a 40% increase in wine exports to China. So, that's, that's now a $520 million market. So, 40% increase in one year there um and uh, so wine exports have have done particularly well um, we know that when Chinese come to Australia uh, that they um, they are much more likely to buy Australian goods once they return back to China so um they say the survey from uh, ACBC, Australian China business Council and lek uh, said that close to 100 percent of chinese respondents to their survey bought australian goods in china and 86 percent of them said that they uh, increased their purchasing of australian goods after
0: visiting australia there are a few um, uh, experience businesses listed as well uh, like skydive on the beach um, things like that uh, i guess they're benefiting as well are they yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, these
4: these experiences, these, particularly ones that are a little bit more out there, a bit more adventurous, uh, are starting to see more and more Chinese customers. So, um, yeah, Sky over the Beach is, is a great example. Uh, I guess there's not too many other businesses in this space that are that are listed, um, but I do know that um, a lot of surfing tour operators have seen an increase in in Chinese customers. Uh, again. Wine tours and um, wine estates uh, have seen an increase in in Chinese visitors. Um, Other products that, just going back to your your previous point, other products that I guess have seen an increase um, in in Chinese purchases are vitamins. Obviously, we we all know about um, Swiss and and some of the other vitamins companies that have done so well out of China. Um, uh, Seafood is actually one of the main things that, Chinese visitors will buy while they're here, um, whether that translates to uh, increased purchases when they go back to China, I'm not so sure. Uh, And then the other one, which I I see a lot of, um, and probably most other people do as well, is dairy products, including things like milk powder. Uh, And again, I guess some listed companies have done very well out of that.
0: Happy birthday, Gordon Lightfoot, the great Canadian singer and songwriter, who turns 79 today. Here he is with If You Could Read My Mind. Just like a paperback novel The kind the drugstore sells When you reach the part Where the heartaches come The hero would be me Heroes often fail and You won't read that book again because the ending just too hard to take. That's it for Talking Finance. You can share your thoughts by emailing hello at theconstantinvestor.com, and I'd love to hear from you. That's it for this week. I'm Alan Kohler. Have a constant week.